0: Now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles. Then the high priest took action, being filled with jealousy. He arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and said, Go, tell the people the whole message about this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and went on with their teaching. Then the captain went with the temple police and brought them, but without violence, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two years ago, on the day after Easter, Gail and I caught a plane to Paris. We didn't really intend to spend much time in Paris, we'd been there several times before. Instead, we intended to see as much of France as we could for almost three weeks by train. Gail knows, having traveled with me all these years, that I just can't pass a church without going in for at least a few moments. I love to see the big, beautiful cathedrals, but I'm also touched by the little village churches as well. Sometimes I just go in and sit very quietly for five, six Maybe 10 minutes in a little church. I grew up in a little church. I pastored two little churches for six years, and there's something very special about a little church and the people who worship in it. In fact, one Sunday during the time we were in France, we were in Lyon, and I had seen a little church in one of the suburbs, and I said, Gail, how about our worshiping Sunday in that little church? She said, that would be fine. And so we went. There were 37 people there, 35 without us. Uh, They didn't have a magnificent choir. They didn't have a uh, multimillion-dollar pipe organ. And they didn't have paintings that were 500 years old uh, that Caravaggio or someone had painted. But it was a beautiful service. It was very meaningful. Uh, We were blessed by it. One day in Caen, we had gone to the beautiful church to see the place where the wife of William the Conqueror was buried, a church that's been in existence there for a thousand years, and they were just arriving for a funeral. And I said to Gail, she said, I know you want to go in. And I said, I would like to see how these French Catholics do funerals. And so we went in and sat over to one side and watched In Europe, if you've seen funerals of famous people, you notice that they don't wear as much color to funerals as we tend to. It was very easy to pick out the funeral directors that day. They had on black suits. There was no pattern in the black suit, no blue threads, no red threads, black suits, white shirts, solid black ties, no pattern whatsoever. But when the congregation arrived, they looked sort of like Americans. Some had on coats and ties, and some had on blue jeans and hiking boots, it looked like. Even so, it was a meaningful service. What we observed from the littlest churches to the great big cathedrals was that right after Easter, they all had a big, tall, white candle. Sometimes these were three feet, four feet high. Sometimes these candles had obviously been formed in a mold of some kind because they had raised symbols on the candle itself. In French, it might say, He is risen. Hallelujah. Christ is Lord. Sometimes it seemed that the candle had been Molded in a, in a simple mold, but then the words were made out of beads, semi-precious stones, pearls even, sometimes a cross made of pearls, pinned to the candles. The candles were so tall, you see, because they were going to burn for seven weeks. An acknowledgment that Easter is not one day but that Easter is the next 50 days, 49, and the 50th one, Pentecost. So Christendom learned through the centuries that for very special times in the church year, you need preparation, and then you need time for reflection. We have four weeks of Advent, and then we have Christmas. But the 12 days of Christmas are supposed to be very significant. And then Epiphany our, re- our celebration of God's willingness to reveal Himself to us Gentiles. Then we go into 40 days of preparation for Easter, and then we're supposed to have 49 days of reflection. on What did all this mean? So our text, our hymns, our anthems are going to be from text having to do with what happened after the resurrection. Let's look at today's text. The first thing we need to remember is that Luke and the other writers in the the Christian scriptures are far more careful to differentiate between the main body of the Jewish people and the leadership in Jerusalem. We Christians have not been good about this. For 2,000 years, some Christians have screamed and ranted and railed at Jews and called the little children, on the way to school or on the way home from school, Christ killers, that sort of thing. It's happened for centuries and centuries because priests, ministers, educators did not point out how carefully these writers were differentiating between the people and the leaders. In this text today, Luke uses the word laos over and over from which we get the word laity, of course. The laos could not get to Him in large enough numbers. They pressed in now on the disciples the same way, hoping even the shadow of Simon Peter or the others might fall on them and their beloved would be healed, their lives would be changed. The leaders were creating a lot of problems, but not the people. Just as Luke, in describing the crucifixion of Jesus, said, the laos, the people... Stood silently watching, helpless in the face of these Romans who were crucifying Jesus. The leaders ranted and raved and scoffed at him, but not the people. We must be very careful to know that these throngs who now push in to see and hear the apostles are Jews. They are Jews. And so Simon says again, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus. We had a wonderful crowd here for Good Friday services. We filled the Great Hall, but not everyone who came last Sunday was here on Good Friday. So if you were not here, let me remind you of what happened in that beautiful service. Again, we had members of the Tulsa Symphony, we had a camarada, some of our finest uh, uh, choir members. We had the old rugged cross had been moved from the library out into the great hall, and then we have as many folding chairs there as we could possibly and safely fit in. Then, with scriptures and prayers and anthems, hymns, uh, we recounted what happened that Friday. Just as we got to the end of the service we came to a section that's called the laments. Now, you know from the word lamentation, the book of the Hebrew Scriptures, that this has to do with weeping, grieving, grieving something and expressing one's grief. The book of Lamentations is pouring out one's heart after the Babylonians have laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, have breached the walls, and have burned Uh, The palace, they burned the beautiful temple that Solomon had built on the top of the mountain uh, 500, uh, 400 years before. And this grieving, oh, the city that once was so filled with life is now uh, motherless. This city's children uh, search for scraps of bread and so on. Okay, in the Good Friday service, we had a series of laments, but we said them as if they were the words of Jesus Christ. As Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, we imagined in this service he is still weeping because of so many wrongs committed, even now, that he laments. And after each of these ten laments, the camarada, not seen by the congregation, around the corner from them, but this wonderful sound filling the great hall would sing a response. And what they were singing each time was, Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. Number nine, lament. I grafted you into the tree of my chosen people, Israel, but you turned on them with persecution and mass murder. I made you joint heirs with them of my covenants, but you made them scapegoats for your own guilt. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. Number two the angel of the Lord appeared to them in the prison and said, Tell the people, as many as you can, the story of this life. And this life, of course, would be Jesus' life. Tell the story of Jesus' life. Before Easter, I was reading frantically every good thing I could read about Easter clergy are always looking for new ideas for Easter. Is there anything we haven't said before, or is there a different way to say it than we've said it before? And one of the articles that I came to was in our United Methodist Reporter. Perhaps you read it, written by Bishop Woody White. I remember when Dan Solomon was our bishop, and one of the speakers that he invited to come and preach at annual conference was Bishop Woody White. He was Bishop of Indiana at that point. Uh, Every year, the bishop gets to choose the preacher that he wants to come and preach to the annual conference. Our bishop has been kind enough to ask me to be that preacher this year. So he will preach for us on Sunday morning, and then I will be the conference preacher on Monday and Tuesday. uh, Sunday night and Monday night, sorry. Uh, And so I'm looking forward to that. Anxious about it, of course, but looking forward to it nonetheless. I remember very well when Bishop Woody White stood in this pulpit and preached. Powerful man, an African-American with a tremendous message. Well, he's now been retired a number of years and is our bishop in residence at our Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, Georgia. And in his article, he said, Once a person is elected a bishop, he or she no longer gets to preach on Easter Sunday. I've heard Bishop Hayes say that. First year after he was elected a bishop, he said, well, I think I'm going to go home to Houston and worship in a church down there because nobody wants the bishop on Easter Sunday. As difficult as it is to preach on Easter Sunday, every preacher wants to get to do that in his or her own church. So Bishop White was saying, you know, I haven't been asked to preach on Easter Sunday in years and years. I've been hearing others preach on Easter Sunday and i'm really tired of hearing preachers try to explain the resurrection i don't want you to explain it i just want you to proclaim it at our last meeting of our jewish christian dialogue group the three jews who were on that group had not arrived just worked out that way only christians sitting around the table before the it got underway And one of these Christian ministers said, I'm still working on my Easter sermon. I'm trying still to figure out just how this resurrection took place. If any of you have any ideas, I'd like for you to help me before we get away from here this afternoon. And I knew immediately I wasn't going to try to help him. When the meeting was over, I hurried away as quickly as I can. I remember when Leslie Weatherhead, great Methodist preacher from London, tried years ago to talk about how God focused an energy beam of some sort so powerfully on the tomb that the molecules began to move around. I don't think that's my job, to try to explain it. And Bishop White says that that's not not our job. Our job is to tell God's story and give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to convince people that it's true. That's it. To tell the story as well as we can. I told you a few weeks ago when the lectionary took us to the story of the prodigal son or the waiting father, and Dr. Fred Craddock's commentary, one of my favorites uh, on Luke, he said to clergy who are reading his book, don't screw up this story. If you need to help your people understand what first century folks might have heard when they heard it, that's fine and good. But don't ruin Jesus' good story here. It's the best one he ever told that we have recorded for us. Just tell Jesus' story. And on the night I was being honored at SMU a couple months ago, in my response I said, I quit reading books years ago about proof that God is or God isn't because I really made up my mind about that when I was 11 years old. I really believed with all my heart that he is. I've never changed my mind about that. So I don't want to read a lot of books trying to convince me that he isn't. I want to start right the way the Jews do. They don't try to argue God's existence the way the Greek philosophers did. They just start in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. There was darkness. God spoke and there was light. There was chaos. God spoke and there was order. And that's what I believe. Our job this seven-week period is to tell God's story as faithfully as we can, as joyfully as we know how. Just proclaim God's story. Number three. So... Being released from prison, they were right back up on the Temple Mount. We were there again just 14 months ago, right back up on the Temple Mount. Of course, there is no temple there now. There are two mosques there now, but it still is a very special place. The day we were there, February last year, it was cold, sort of a drizzly rain, and the wind was blowing on the top of the hill. I've been there when it's 102 degrees I prefer cold. Uh, it was it was a very interesting place to be again on the Temple Mount. There were the apostles teaching, preaching this life, as the angel had told them. And what they were saying then was that God in Christ has given you the possibility of forgiveness. You can be forgiven. Forgive comes from the the, uh, German word forgiefen, which means to give up. That God has given up his right to do to you what you've done to somebody else. Jesus prayed for you and me. Father, I give up my right. I pray you will give up your right to do to them what they're doing to me forgiveness. Sarah Maitland has decided the last number of years that she's trying to find solitude and quiet. She has moved alone to a, a rustic sort of house that she's fixed up a little bit in the Galloway portion of Scotland. Bishop Paul Galloway and his family came from that part of Scotland. There are famous cattle called the Galloway cattle that come from that particular part of Scotland. It is the least densely inhabited portion of the United Kingdom today. Sarah says there is not a child within 10 miles of her that the only people living in this remote part of Scotland are old, dying shepherds and they don't talk very much she said in fact she finally got so lonely she got her a dog and she said I really miss touching something warm and alive so I call my dog and I hug my dog every time I need a hug but most of the time she said I'm trying to learn what it means to live in solitude because I think there are things that happen to a person when he or she gets really quiet. Once a year, Sarah works with a touring company to take tourists a busload to the Sinai Desert, once every year. She said, we fly into Sharm el-Sheikh, and we take a bus from there, And we come to the end of the road for buses, and we get into a series of Land Rovers, and we go into the desert where the mountain is that Moses saw the burning bush, the mountain where Moses ascended and came down with the Ten Commandments, that mountain. And then we tell people what we've already told them before they signed on, there are no beds there are no rooms. You're going to find a place in one of these caves. Sleep the best you can. We're going to be quiet. We want you to experience silence. Maybe the way Elijah did when he had defeated the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel, when Jezebel had seen the blood of her prophets floating in the waters of the Jezreel River and said, you tell Elijah, his blood will flow in the streets. Elijah ran a hundred miles south and ended up on the mountain. There was thunder and lightning. But it was only, you know, the King James says, a still, small voice. Scholars today say that it doesn't really say voice. It really says, in the sheer silence, the sheer silence, he heard God. 400 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after Constantine had embraced Christianity, and as Dr. Brueggemann reminded you, many people were embracing empire rather than neighborhood, some people who felt called of God decided to go into the desert. The word hermit that we have comes from a Greek word which means desert. A hermit is one who goes to the desert. Finally, there were so many who did not want to be corrupted by empire and were going to the desert that the bishop of Alexandria, northernmost Africa, Basil, said to a group of these young monks, and whose feet will you wash in the desert? And one young monk dared to say, sir, I'm hoping Jesus will wash my feet. Forgiveness. Get away from the noise. Be really silent. And See if maybe Jesus would wash your feet and set you right. They also said, God has sent us in the name of Jesus to tell you about the gift of repentance. And here Dr. Robert hill the other scholars I read this week said, what that means is the gift of a chance to repent. Remember repentance, has to do with turning and returning in Hebrew, and it has to do with conversion in the Greek word, metanoia, to, to, to change energy going in one direction to an entirely different direction. It's a gift of a possibility. Three years ago, Gail and I were visiting some of the camps in Germany, you recall, Having seen three of the best-known ones in Poland on a prior trip, we saw five in Germany. The last one, we went to Flossenburg. It was really difficult to get there. We took a train as far as trains went, then we had to ride two different buses to get to the camp at Flossenburg. But I specifically wanted to go there because it's where Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. A Christian, a Christian who stood up against Adolf Hitler, even entered into one of the threats on Hitler's life, trying to kill him, believing that if they could get rid of Hitler, that the rest of the killing would stop. Just two weeks before the Americans arrived to liberate the camp at Flossenburg, on a cold April morning, they walked Dietrich Bonhoeffer outside. The cell stripped him of his clothes and hanged him. We stood at the very spot where that happened. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, you know, grace is a free gift of God. But if you want his grace to deal with your sins and not with the sinner, that is not to change you, not to turn you, not to return you to the one who created you, and you cheapen God's gift. Dr. Karl Barth was called by Pope Pius Twelfth the greatest theologian since St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas had lived 700 years before, so that's quite a statement. Karl Barth, the greatest theologian, the Pope said, since St. Thomas Aquinas. Karl Barth wrote copiously, he was professor at the University of Berlin, 1933-34, when Hitler had come to power. Uh, all Jews were dismissed from the faculty. All Jews were forced out of the student body. Karl Barth was a Christian, and Karl Barth refused to pledge allegiance to the Fuhrer, and so he was tossed out of his job as well. He went back to his native Switzerland. He was born in Basel. He finally came to United States in 1962 when he was already 76 years old. And at Princeton Theological Seminary one night, he was teaching, sitting in a chair on stage, 76, and not in good health. Finally, at one point, they opened the session up for questions, and he was sort of sitting there with his head in his hands. And one of the students asked, Dr. Bard, of all the things you ever learned about God, what was the most important? And he thought for only a moment, lifted his head and said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Elizabeth Templeton taught for more than 10 years at the Presbyterian Seminary in Edinburgh, Scotland, and became a part of the Faith and Order uh, Commission of the World Council of Churches in Geneva. She was asked one time, Dr. Templeton, what would you do if you were standing at a bus stop and someone said to you, Describe to me the significance of the resurrection. My bus comes in two minutes but she wasn't willing to go quite where karl bart was she said i would say to him are you willing to miss your bus